You are listening to a podcast from The National. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Headlines, a weekly podcast from The National where we analyze the top stories of the week. I'm your host, Nasr al-Wesmi. On this episode, we'll be talking about how Abu Dhabi rose in the Ipsos ranks to become the second best city to live in, and how the Middle East views Donald Trump, despite his record low polls in the US. But first, we've had a lot of news coming out of Palestine this week on how residents are suffering from the blackouts in Gaza, and more recently to the shootings that happened in Al-Haram al-Sharif, otherwise known as Temple Mount. I had a conversation with Naomi Zevalov, our foreign correspondent in Palestine, who's been covering the blackouts in Gaza. Naomi, thank you for taking some time out to join us. Of course. You've been reporting on a crisis that's been deteriorating for months. It started in April when the West Bank-based Palestinian Authority told Israel that it'll stop paying for electricity supply to Gaza. Israel has been providing the region with electricity at the cost of uh, $11 million a month, about 40 million dirhams. It seems that matters have gone really dire in Gaza, with more or less a complete halt to business and the livelihood of its almost 2 million inhabitants. Naomi, could you uh, give us a bit of an idea of how life is in Gaza? Certainly. So I spent a week there a couple of weeks ago, and things have actually gotten much worse since I was there even. But basically, uh, families there are getting, you know, maybe four hours of electricity every 24 hours. And, you know, this means that when the electricity comes on, no matter what time of day or night, it's an enormous scramble for the people there who are, you know, charging cell phones, turning on the refrigerator to have some cold water um, and turning on the the washing machine. Uh, Families, some of them that have the means are supplementing with generator power. Um, I've heard, you know, many stories of, of neighborhoods that will kind of form together to buy a large generator and then families will attach to lines to the generator. And other people, you know, others are using, um, you know, others, other sources of power like, you know, these dim LED lights. I was in homes where, where you saw those. And, you, you know, some families are just are they're using candles to light the dark. Um, so it's, you know, it's very difficult for people. And I, and one other thing of note is that, you know, the sea is, is kind of one, uh, place of recreation or, or, uh, for the people in Gaza who really, you know, have, who are really boxed into where they live. And this, the sea has been so polluted in recent months because the electricity has made it, um, very difficult to uh, to basically process sewage in Gaza. So the sewage processing machines are malfunctioning and leaking. Uh, you know, in one report that I read, an Olympic swimming pool-sized amount of uh, wastewater into the beach where Gazans, you know, swim, and it's causing skin problems and really, you know, poisoning this kind of one horizon that regular Gazans had. What effect is it playing on, uh, I imagine, I mean, it must have a huge effect on on the medical services and just the private sector. Uh, what kind of hit are they taking? Has it just come to a complete right. halt? Well, the hospitals are, you know, it, it very impressively uh, continuing to function in spite of the situation. The hospitals I went to uh, are using generator power. One of them, I saw the generators that they were using were just enormous, like the size of a room in the house. Um, to so the majority of the day is in the hospital is powered through a generator, 
Um, and some hospitals are closing like these non-critical wards, but for places like a kidney dialysis center and certainly like a neonatal intensive care unit for, you know, newborns, the machines have to be on at all times. And if there's any hiccup in power, it can really be, you know, devastating and, and fatal for the individuals who rely on these machines. So, you know, I've heard stories of, uh, you know, times when there was a kind of lag in power between when the you know, when the electricity went off and the generator kicked on or vice versa. And, um, you know, doctors and nurses were running into intensive care units to manually pump oxygen to people that were hooked up to machines that would have normally done this. So it's, it's very, it's, it's very challenging for these medical centers. But, uh, from what I understand, you know, they've, they've managed to continue care to a, to an impressively high degree. And then, you know, for businesses, I think that it's also very difficult. You more or less they're uh, relying on on generator power, uh, which, you know, like at the hospitals is is, you know, can be on and off. And, and also when with the constant switching of electricity, it's not good for electronics. So it's actually can, you know, cause deterioration of, you know, uh, light and electricity systems just because of the, the switching of, of power. So it's all, you know, it's it's a very sort of stressed system already. Right. And I think, I mean, I think this is where it gets messy, but I mean, how, how do the political factions factor into this? I mean, who, who do Palestinians and, and Gaza blame for this? It's, uh, it's a touchy subject, right? On one hand, they don't want to be supporting a service provided by an occupying Israel, but at the same time, people need electricity if they are to live any semblance of a normal life. So, I mean, what are people saying of the crisis, especially as, as the summer heats up? Right. Well, you know, the... People that I talked to, everybody kind of, um, you know, would go further back in time and say that the crisis in electricity began in 2006 when Israel bombed the, the power plant in Gaza and uh, in retaliation for the kidnapping um, by Hamas of an Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit, who, of course, was later released in this massive uh, prisoner swap. So but that was really when the electricity started to go bad, even though the power um, even, even though it was rebuilt, the power center. It was it never again really reached full capacity. And so, you know, people in Gaza, you know, for the past 10 ish years have been used to uh, diminished electricity of eight hours on and eight hours off. But recently it's been the political infighting between um, the PA, uh, which is affiliated with Fatah and then, you know, their rival group Hamas inside Gaza. And basically around April, Hamas um, started to protest the really uh, high taxes on gas that were charged and saying that they know they were protesting the taxes and, and until that was resolved, they didn't want to pay the gas bill. And so, you know, the PA in response to that um, basically said, OK, well, we're going to, you know, cut the electricity. So the electricity sort of started to ratchet down at that moment. And then it got even worse um, just last month when the PA actually asked Israel to cut power on electrical lines. Um, that go into Gaza. And that's kind of where the current crisis came from. So in terms of regular people, like their opinions are running the gamut. I mean, ev nobody's thanking Israel at all for, you know, people are certainly blaming Israel overall for the, the blockade and, and, the, and the broader uh, issues of day to day life there. But I've definitely heard a lot of criticism um, of the PA for for basically, you know, you know, pe people people feel that the PA is is 
you know, turning the screws on the civilian population there in a, in a completely inhumane way. But then I also would hear some criticism um, of Hamas for kind of failing to take care of the population that it controls in the Strip. So, you know, the, the people there are, are blaming everybody. Um, and it's, it's a complex situation and it's unclear how it's going to play out. Of course. You wrote an article for us earlier this week uh, about solar panels in Gaza, and it seems that all over the world, solar panels panels are becoming more and more a disruptive element in the energy field. So, I mean, tell me what you've seen. Tell me how that factors in. And I mean, what kind of potential can we see in Gaza for solar energy? So, you know, there has been there's been some um, like larger scale solar projects um, at universities in Gaza and then also um, the United Nations Development Program has put up solar panels. My story was more focused on like private individuals and businesses that are also seeking out solar panels because they just feel that they cannot rely on this grid. I mean, I think, you know, 10 years ago and maybe even throughout the time of eight hours on, eight hours off of electricity, Gazans, you know, were adjusting to this. But the recent cuts have been just so extreme that people want to be independent of the grid, which, you know, the grid is so influenced by politics. And so it's a way for them to kind of, um, you know, in a way, rise, rise above that. But again, it's for Gazans who, for, for the private citizens that are doing it, they have to have money because it's, it's really not cheap to install uh, these solar panels. But uh, for the people that are, they feel that they can have, you know, a more normal life um, by, you know, being able to turn on the lights at night or run the washing machine when they need to, or, uh, you know, putting food in the refrigerator or running a fan. One guy that I talked to has, you know, four school age children that are constantly needing to study. Uh, I should say a couple of them are in university and he just, it was like their study habits were this major source of stress for him until he bought these solar panels and was able to kind of free himself from the unpredictability of the grid. It would be such a, a success story for both Gaza and for solar energy around the world if all of a sudden it was the exclusive source of power, completely disassociating <laughs> themselves. Uh, could you give us an update on what's happening in Al-Haram Sharif, uh, also known as Temple Mount? Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, as I'm sure you know, there was an attack there on, on Friday. Um uh, very close to the area in which um, three men uh, who are, you know, ha- actually have Israeli citizenship, um, Arab Israelis, attacked um, police officers there, and they uh, and then were, were chased onto the um, compound where Al-Aqsa is located, and were killed there in a in a very dramatic sequence. And uh, so over the week. And Israel closed the area. And from what I understand, it was the first time that um, Friday prayers for Muslims were prohibited there in something like 48 years. And so this was, of course, uh, you know, there was a very large reaction to this, uh, you know, uh, among Muslim leaders, both in Jerusalem and then in, in other parts of the world. And then when Israel reopened the site, it did so with these metal detectors. And the, so now there's been a metal detectors and also video cameras. So now there's been a kind of protest movement that started where, um, you know, Muslims in Jerusalem and their leaders, religious leaders are saying that these uh, metal detectors are, you know, constitute a violation of the sort of status quo agreement, which governs the area in which the, you know, the, the, 
um, site is administered by the Jordanian Waqf, um, but Israel sort of controls security around it. And so in protest, you're seeing a lot of um, people that are praying outside of the uh, metal detectors, which is like an incredibly striking scene. If you've seen any, any of these photographs with, you know, these, this bank of metal detectors and, you know, Israeli security uh, in between each one. And then just lines and lines of, of men, you know, praying, uh, kneeling outside of them. And there have also been, uh, you know, clashes that have started with, you know, many injuries um, of people that are, again, um, you know, protesting the Israeli measures at the Haram al-Sharif. And it's, you know, very unclear where how it's going to play out. Obviously, this is like the most sensitive site in uh, Jerusalem. And I would say it's, you know, its impact is much, much broader than just in Jerusalem or the area. Um, you know, it, it will resonate with, you know, Muslims around the world what happens uh, at this site. And so it's it's a bit of a standoff right now, you know, with local leaders, you know, again, saying don't enter this site your, you know, your holy site when uh, Israel has these new security measures up and then Israel saying that the new security me measures are really essential for the security of the site. Um, so that's kind of what we've seen so far. As far as I know, there haven't been other like fatalities around this, um, but things are, are very, very tense. And I would say this is like a pretty significant moment. I've been reporting here for three years and there have been, you know, different, um, you know, clashes that have erupted. Um, but this one, I think is, it's fair to say that it's much more serious because of the very location of, of the incident, um, being at, you know, the, the most sensitive place. Right. Well, we'll keep a close eye on that and you do the same. Yeah. I mean, I mean, stay safe while you're doing that as well, because as you said, it is very sensitive. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. In other headlines uh, this week, Donald Trump has made history yet again, this time for having the lowest approval rating out of any American president in his first six months in office. According to a new poll conducted by Washington Post and ABC, approximately only 36% of Americans approve of the job he's been doing. In comparison, former presidents Barack Obama and George W. Bush both had a higher approval rating at this point in their presidency, with 59% approval rating. Joining me today is Joyce Karam, our Washington correspondent. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Nasser. Joyce, I know you wrote a story earlier uh, this week about this. I mean, how does that fare in terms of in Washington? What's, what's, what's happening inside the Beltway? Uh, well, 36% uh, popularity is very uh, low number, of, especially when you look at former U.S. presidents at this point of their presidencies. Uh, inside the Beltway, we are seeing uh, the impact of that in the Senate, in the uh, in the House. We're seeing that uh, Republicans are distancing uh, themselves from their president. Uh, right now, the health care um, the health care bill that uh, Mr. Trump hoped to pass is uh, collapsing uh, in Congress. Uh, the legislative agenda for the president is very much uh, crippled. Uh, when uh, Mr. Trump came to office, he spoke about uh, ambitious goals, uh, reforming immigration, uh, tax return, repealing Obamacare on day one. Uh, 
uh, we're day almost 180 now, and uh, the Obamacare repeal is is uh, out of the window. Uh, the other uh, legislative uh, goals are uh, are also uh, unrealistic uh, today, and uh, the unpopularity of this president seems uh, to be weighing in on Republicans and their fears of uh, costing them uh, in the ballot box. Uh, next year in the midterm elections. So, uh, Joyce, another uh, issue that Trump has kind of been caught up with, with the, the Qatar boycott dragging on into its second month, I know that a lot of uh, Gulf officials were in Washington last month uh, lobbying, uh, working diplomatically, trying to figure out whether they could hedge uh, uh, their power against uh, each other. But, I mean, I just was wondering, how do you think Trump has fared during the Qatar crisis how might his policy be viewed by leaders in the Gulf? The problem that you're having with the U.S. Uh, messaging in the in the Qatar uh, crisis and the Qatar problem is there are mixed messages uh, from the U.S. on on this issue. So uh, we hear, for example, uh, Defense Secretary Mattis saying there are no plans. Uh, we are not putting contingency plans to move uh, Al Hudaid Air Base from. Uh, Qatar, and then you hear uh, the U.S. president saying actually 10 countries uh, said that they would be willing to take uh, Al Udaid, uh, to take the airbase where the U.S. troops to leave uh, Al Udaid. Uh, you're seeing the mixed messages uh, also from Secretary of State Rex Tillerson saying on the one hand that uh, Qatar's response has been reasonable, and then uh, Mr. Trump calling Qatar uh, almost three times now funder of terrorism. So uh, I don't think there is uh, a consistent message or strategy from the administration, and that's where you see uh, many sites, many players uh, hedging their bets. Some are uh, get get one uh, one message from the White House. They go to a meeting with the State Department. They hear something else. This will only uh, help in uh, prolonging uh, the crisis and undercuts uh, U.S. diplomacy in, uh, in in reaching out to to different players in the region. One area where Trump has uh, remained consistent is his policy towards Iran. Uh, we just got news that there is newly imposed sanctions coming out of Washington. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that, Joyce? Uh, yes. So hours after certifying the Iran deal, saying that uh, his administration will adhere to it, uh, we saw uh, in parallel to that new uh, non-nuclear uh, sanctions targeting uh, Iran, 16, uh, 16, uh, six, <clears throat> 16 sites uh, and entities have been uh, designated. Some are individuals uh, to, to the Iranian military establishment, to the IRGC, Iranian Revolutionary Guards, uh, and uh, companies, to, one is based in Turkey and one is based in China and one is based in uh, uh, Iran. Uh, so I think what you see from admi this administration is more willingness to confront Iran when it 
comes when when it comes to its activities uh, in the region, uh, when it comes to cyber uh, security. One of the companies that's been targeted is uh, is accused of hacking attempts. The Agili company. Uh, so uh, this is very much consistent with uh, Mr. Trump's. Uh, approach to Iran. On the one hand, we will not disrupt the nuclear deal as long as Iran is complying, but we will escalate and go after Iranian uh, activities uh, in the region where, where, the, where there is a need and where they cut into uh, U.S. interests something that former President Barack Obama had been reluctant in in doing. Also, we're seeing the U.S. Congress this week will discuss more uh, sanctions on Iran and Russia, and that's still to be determined whether the bill will be signed uh, by the White House. As will Trump's presidency as he completes his first year. Joyce, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. In another big story this week, uh, Abu Dhabi has been ranked as the second best city to live and work in. The study came out of Ipsos, which is a global market research and consulting firm based in Paris. We're joined by James Langton, a senior reporter, longtime reporter with The National, uh, to go through the report. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, I think this is going to surprise a lot of people, uh, maybe especially if they don't live in Abu Dhabi. Uh, when you look at the competition, you know, you've got Paris, uh, uh, London, both below Abu Dhabi in terms of, of, of as the rankings. And you think, well, how can this be? But the answer is actually that, 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 that Abu Dhabi is, is quite a strong player across the board. So people like to go to Paris for their holidays. They're like, it's a great place for trips, but it's maybe not so good to do business there. Whereas Abu Dhabi has a, a, is, is a great place to do business and it's also got great tourist infrastructure um, and it's a good place to live, as we know, because we all live and, and work here as well. And it was, uh, so New York and then Abu Dhabi. And I think what pushed, like you said, Abu Dhabi up there was the, the business aspect of it. Is that correct? It was certainly very strong on business. I mean, it's hard to imagine uh, anywhere being better than New York to do business. You know, it's the global capital of the world. Um, but uh, Abu Dhabi was, is right up there behind them and, and ahead of London, which I think will surprise a lot of people. But it, it's about ease of doing business. And it's about the perception of, 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 of the city to, to the wider world. This is, this is a survey that was carried out uh, in 26 countries. Uh, and I think about 19,000 people were invited. And you didn't. It, what is interesting is you didn't have to visit it, Abu Dhabi, to vote for it. So it says that it says that actually the city is doing a great job in promoting itself. Uh, you know, it's it's known all over the world. So it's kind of like people, even if people haven't been here, it's somewhere that's on their bucket list of kind of places they want to get to. And I mean, this is a legitimate report. It's it's coming out of Ipsos, which has been around uh, doing market research for 30 years. Uh, they do this every, I think, four years. If I'm not, if I'm not, uh, uh, if I'm correct, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So, I, I, I mean, what do you think this means for the tourism industry uh, going forward? What, what do you think this means for Abu Dhabi uh, as it grows? Well, I think this suggests there's a there's a huge untapped market. Uh, as I said, you know, um, you. You didn't have to have visited Abu Dhabi to vote for it. And interestingly, they didn't poll in the UAE as well for this survey. So there isn't like the element of people voting for their hometown. This is genuinely people all over the world being asked what they think of these cities. And Abu Dhabi is clearly somewhere that intrigues them. Um, and it, one would expect that, that will only grow as as the tourism infrastructure grows, as we see Yes Island developing more theme parks, as we see uh, the Louvre Abu Dhabi opening. Uh, it, it's... It's 
only a place that's going to grow in people's imaginations and in their travel plans. So as someone who's uh, worked and lived here for almost 10 years, would you agree with the report, James? Uh, I, th I think it's it's well-deserved, you know? I mean, I think uh, you, when you look at the efforts at the... When I came here, uh, as a lot of people did start the National in 2008, there wasn't a lot going on. You know, I mean, there were essentially a couple of hotels that people went to. But now it's a transformed city. It's a much bigger city. I mean, you know, I live out uh, off the island now, and that's that's very much part of, of the city itself. If you, if you look at Yes Island, that's now a real center uh, of life where there's, as I said, theme parks, shopping malls, hotels, restaurants. It's all growing. It can only it can only. It can only get bigger. And I think the other point to make is that people have heard of Abu Dhabi now. I mean, it's uh, you know, something like, like the Star Wars filming. That had a huge impact on people. And it's like, well, I want to go there and see where they filmed Star Wars. So uh, I think the report uh, broke it down by demographics, baby boomers, uh, Generation X, millennials. I mean, how, how does that factor into how Abu Dhabi ranked? Yeah, so there's, there's uh, four uh, distinct categories of, of age groups here. The baby boomers, who are essentially people born between about 19... 45, I think, in the early 60s. Uh, then you have generation, I'd lose track actually, but this generation X, and I think the current generation is described. Millennials, who are those who were born kind of around the, just before the turn of the century and came of age in the early, early years of this century. And the latest group, which is essentially anyone under the age of 21. I think they're called Generation Z for reasons I'm not quite sure about. Um, but what was, what was interesting is that, you know, the older people, when, 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 when asked about where they wanted to go to uh, and what they thought about cities, they, they kind of, they, they headed for the places that they knew. They wanted to take their vacations in Rome. They wanted to go to Paris. They wanted to go to New York. Um, but you could see a definite trend as you dealt with the the younger age groups that they were more interested in uh, in in Abu Dhabi as somewhere that they wanted to work, live, and play in. Uh, it was interesting uh, in terms of quality of life, where you wanted to live, that the place, the youngest age group, uh, Generation Z, uh, so that's, as I said, that's the 20s uh, and under, their favorite destination was Hollywood. Uh, not Hollywood, was was Los Angeles. Mm. Uh, so obviously, yeah, Hollywood. So the, the whole, that's, the idea of, of Los Angeles intrigued them and, and you know, it seemed like an exciting place to be, big celebrity culture, cool place to hang out. But then Abu Dhabi comes second to that. So it suggests that, that for young people, they see Abu Dhabi as a kind of cool place to be. And I'm also wondering, I think, in you know, particularly in this region where there's so much instability and so much youth unemployment, I, I think it's a recognition that Abu Dhabi and the UAE is a kind of uh, is a beacon of hope of somewhere where you can come and, and free yourself from all the constraints of, uh, of, of, of societies where there's high unemployment, where there's maybe political difficulties, where there's civil war in some places. Uh, you know, you can come here and actually find yourself and live the kind of life you want to live. As someone who's uh, both lived in Los Angeles and Abu Dhabi, I, I can definitely agree with that. Anyways, James, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. I'd like to thank all my guests, Naomi, Joyce, and James, for joining me on this episode of Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Nasr al-Wesmi. Thank you, and goodbye.